Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Today, the very tricky subject of nutrition guidelines and what to do when the science is either unclear or, frankly, unbelievable. I'm talking to David Johns, a journalist with a PhD in the history of public health and medicine. I first came across David Johns with a piece of his in The Atlantic, in which he lifted the lid on what was called nutrition science's most preposterous result. That result, a very robust connection that eating ice cream was associated with a lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Yeah, I know, it seems incredible. But this wasn't the first bit of difficult nutritional advice that Johns had poked at. He first took a look at a report on reducing salt, and then he challenged the idea that the sugar industry had somehow conspired to shift the blame for heart disease from sugar to fat. Well, first off, I wondered what attracted him to these stories. I think, like, I'm a middle child, and so I'm used to, like, you know, deal-making or something, or, like, not having, like, being willing to kind of understand others' viewpoints. And for me, I've always been perplexed by people who have, like, really strong opinions about in, in arenas where I think, like, I don't know, it's a, little, it's a little muddy. And so, like, I'm always drawn to questions where, like, I just think that, like, I don't understand how people have such confidence in their views, when to me it's like, I could, I don't know, it just seems a little messy. Well, to go back to the beginning, in the early 2000s, the health commissioner in New York City was a man called Tom Frieden, and he really pushed for a smoking ban in workplaces and restaurants, and that had a solid impact on smoking in New York. Well, Frieden also promoted a ban on trans fats, and more controversially, on salt. The problem was that around the time Frieden was calling for a reduction in salt, studies came out questioning the view that lower sodium improved heart health. That made life difficult for people who thought that taking salt down a little would offer big public health benefits. It was a bunch of solid researchers doubting that idea. Frieden moved to direct the Centers for Disease Control, where one of the first things he did was to commission a report on salt from the Institute of Medicine. So he commissioned this report to really look at this question and to try to answer once and for all, consulting the most powerful and influential scientific institution in the U.S. And the, to their surprise, they expected the, the, the Institute of Medicine to come back and say, you know, this is these are a bunch of crappy studies. We don't really need to worry about this. But actually what they came back and said was like, ah, we don't know. So it ended up being this really kind of messy thing um, that did kind of get swept under the rug. I mean, you say that the idea was to decide once and for all, you know, what's the story with salt? And, and the answer was, eh, we don't know. But, but what happened as a result? I mean, you'd think that a strong, we don't know, might, might have had an impact on recommendations, government policy, something like that. So what happened in the case of salt? 
Well, it, it, I, I shouldn't say that it, it didn't have an impact. And I, I, also, I also oversimplified the story maybe a little bit. The big, the big issue was at that time what was coming up was there were, there were a series of studies, most of them epidemiological. Um, so that's an observational study where they looked at groups of people over time and try to correlate their sodium intake with disease outcomes. Basically, what they were seeing is or what the claim was is that in some of these very large pop- population-based studies – that essentially that there was kind of a the claim was there was this kind of a sweet spot for sodium intake that if you had too much that that was bad every people agreed on that okay it's associated with blood pressure increase it's associated with cardiovascular disease outcomes what happened on the low end in other words like how low do you need to go was much less clear and what some of these studies were showing was basically like if you got your sodium intake too low, then the 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 um, then that was dangerous too, right? So then your your cardiovascular outcome. So there was like a what they called either a J shaped or a U shaped curve, where like at the bottom of that curve was the point at which the lowest risk would be. And so the question was like where that was and whether this like thing at the low end was real. Basically, so that would that would dictate where governments would set recommendations, right? So it's a complicated question. So what the, what the, this this report did was specifically focus pretty neatly on that lower end question and and tried to say like, is this real or is this somehow an artifact of the data? And what the report said is basically we don't really know. And the report also said we don't actually know based on current evidence, what the set point should be for, for like, we don't know what, what level really to recommend for population level sodium intake. We do think there's risk at the, at the high end, but actually setting that level, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little fuzzy. Right. And, and 10 years on, has there been any change? No, I would say not really. There's still kind of this split within the research community among those who say um, this, this potential danger at the low end is... Um, some of the quote unquote skeptics, as we might call them, say it's say it's real. And then, um, you know, pe- people who are more pushing for sodium reduction say it's it's an artifact of the data somehow or it's just not relevant to, to the pu- public policymaking in some way. So there continues to be this divide. I should say, like our, our perspective that my colleagues and I who were writing about sodium was always like there's so many people who are like kind of taking sides in this issue and being like it's this way or it's that way. We our perspective was more like looking at it as kind of historians and sociologists, although one of our, you know, pu- you know, co-authors is a very prominent epidemiologist, we were looking at it kind of from a sociological perspective, like what explains the division in these two camps? Like, why are they divided? Is it, is it, the, is it the influence of the food industry? Is it, you know, big money somehow? Is it something to do with the structure of public health or the way that people think about, you know, policymaking? And so that was where we were coming from. We weren't, weren't neither, none of us were like, oh, we're going to say we're for or against. Um, and my view, and, and just to, just to cap out what, where I, you know, I, I do think, like, certainly the consensus within the nutrition science community is that there is a important and meaningful signal associated with sodium reduction and, you know, blood pressure and pop- the benefits of potential population, you know, lowering. But it's a complicated issue for anybody to do anything about. And, and is it possible to say what caused the polarization? Um. I think our conclusion, basically, we actually did a whole we did a whole thing where we kind of like mapped the we did like a bibliometric analysis where we like mapped the citation networks in, in academics, in scientific research. You know, citations are a really important way that 
you know, scientists signal, who am I paying attention to? What's important, right? So what we did is we constructed this big map looking at all these studies and how they interconnected, right? And basically what we found is that there were two communities, two social communities, right? There were sort of the mainstream, you know, public health people, and then there were the skeptics. But what was more interesting is that, like, there was a tendency to cite papers from within your own from on from with on your own side of the debate, you know what I mean? So that explained kind of this polarization. And where did it come from? Like I actually have unpublished, you know, stuff I haven't published related to this issue where I kind of look at this how and how it developed more over time. My view is that like part of it comes from like an increasing concern that frankly that the food industry was on the kind of skeptic side and con concomitant reactions on the, you know, public health pro-sodium reduction side. I mean, in a way, you could look at it as being related to <laughs> polarization that we see in, in political discourse these days, in which it became increasingly difficult for the two sides to kind of trust each other. Right. Um, I, I suspect most most people are not, not that aware of the, of the um, different attitudes towards salt. I mean, it really is quite ingrained that, as you said, that high salt is is bad for you. But how much should you reduce it? I don't. I don't think people are really aware of that discussion. But but when it comes to fat and heart disease and sugar and heart disease, this is a real problem. And that, I, you 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 also looked at that, and in particular this idea that became popular. I don't know what about. Eight, nine, seven, eight years ago, maybe, the idea that somehow big sugar had twisted scientists around to put the blame more on fat, and that sugar got a kind of free pass on on heart disease. Am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, more or less. I mean, people began to be more interested in low carb style eating around the turn of the 21st century. There were some publications where people were getting more interested in that. And um, at the same time, the nutrition community was moving, was inching ever so slowly away from kind of the low fat, you know, um, way of thinking, which had dominated the 1980s and 1990s. I would say the nutrition community consensus certainly still is that saturated fat contributes to, you know, our atherosclerosis, hardening of arteries, et cetera, you know, and, and that there's that there's um, a relationship there. But there had long been this kind of overall sense that you should reduce all kinds of fat, right? There had been this long thing about, you know, low fat, low fat, low fat, and then it seemed like things were changing, right? And so people, there's nothing that pisses people off more than, you know, experts telling them don't eat this food and then to have them change their mind, especially if they like that food, right? Mm -hmm. And so like this had, this had changed and people were like, what explains this? And also, I should say, at the same time, people had increasingly been pointing the figure at sugar. So the the the, the focus of the the bad you know entity in the diet had shifted from fat to sugar, right? Um, more and more sodas. We all saw this, right? And so so then people started to look back and say, maybe there's an explanation here where you know the industry had sort of misled us, and maybe that was part of the reason why the low fat diet kind of took off is because sh the sugar industry had sort of 
you know, pushed that kind of research and kind of blocked or, you know, obscured research that would have indicated the harms of sugar, right? And this kind of very specifically got pointed out looking at these Harvard researchers, and it got massive, massive news coverage, you know, front page, New York Times. I mean, every news outlet published it wall to wall. As it happened, I had done a whole bunch of research in the archives already at that point of one of these researchers who was sort of implicated in all this. And I just felt like I and my colleague, Jerry Oppenheimer, we just felt like this doesn't make sense. And also because like the people they were accusing of sort of doing the bidding of the sugar industry already believed that fat was bad and that sugar was kind of harmless at the time that they were that they they did have relationships with all kinds of food industries at the time because everybody was taking money from all these different industries. Like that was the way nutrition research was done. We were trying to just complicate this story about like there's a there's such a you know tradition in or you know a, um, a habit in in these contentious scientific debates of like really making kind of good guys and bad guys. And what we you know what we were trying to do was complicate this story and say like you know these bad guys are really like they're not. I mean. Yeah, they did take money from the industry, but the people you say are the good guys also took money from industry. And it's just way more comp- – like the food industry, it's not like tobacco. Like you have multiple food industries and they're all competing for like a share of your stomach in a, friend, in a sense, right? You know what I mean? And so like and so like if you eat more sugar, you eat less fat. If you eat more fat, you eat less sugar. So there's like – they're competing. It's not like tobacco where it's like – they're pushing in one, you know, where there's only one player and one. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a complicated landscape. Yeah, but I mean, I, mean, I guess it, it comes down again to, to sort of wanting simplicity, that it, either sugar was the bad thing or fats were the bad thing. And among fats, either it was saturated fats or it wasn't saturated fat so i mean there is this there there does seem to be a hunger for simplicity absolutely yeah i mean i think like you know frankly i know that like in the low fat era that was one of the reasons they 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 at the time they were like we really are pretty confident saturated fat is bad we think that Total fat intake is is bad because, you know, fat ca- fat on a gram-per-gram basis contains more calories than carbohydrates. And we know that obesity is an increasing problem. So if we just – but if we, if we start talking about saturated fat, that's just like too complicated. People aren't going to understand that. So we just want to make a simple message and say – you know, kind of fat is bad. And that was really like a policy decision that, you know, some nutrition experts made kind of when they were trying to figure out what kind of guidance to give to the public. And that was probably a mistake, you know, because like they were simplifying it in a way that turned out at least a current, you know, probably according to current conventional thinking was wrong. When you when you get a, you know, the front cover of Time magazine saying butters back and, and, and you know, the hero photographs of a, of a block of butter with curls coming up. People are, people are in, inclined to say, well, you can't trust anything, we're told. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the uh, one thing that's important to keep a, a focus on is um, the fact that everybody's interested in food. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Nutrition stories do well in the media. That's why there's so many diet books of every single stripe of every kind. There's a there's a market for it. You can make money doing this. So that's why, like, 
you know, there's an there's a huge appetite in the press for publications about ice cream or for publications about sodium or whatever. Like those stories are always like, oh, that's an interesting story, right? And so there's there's there is this kind of conveyor belt. There's incentives all around from the researchers themselves to the university press offices that put out the press releases related to the studies to the reporters who write up those press releases and hopefully do a few more interviews to try to figure out if they're true or not. But maybe if they don't have enough time, they don't really do that. And so then you get this sort of, you know, conveyor belt of nutrition advice that goes out into the press. And so, like, if there's an opportunity to write a story that says butter is back, even if that's like headline is a little bit too tall or is sort of overstating the evidence in some kind of way, you know, the editors might say, hey, they might not know any better, but they also might say, oh, well, you know, I think, you know, there's there's something there, you know, this this makes sense. Right. And so, you know, yeah. Well, let's let's come on to your latest. um, I don't know what to call it. Revelation. Um, Ice cream is good for you. So we combine dairy fat and sugar and it's protective against diabetes and I, 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 that's a weird one. It sure is, yeah. And so I should say, like, this has been one. This has been one that's been a, a struggle for me in, ter- in terms of like doing media interviews about it. Because the point of the story for me always was not so much ice cream is good for you. In fact, I, I believe going, you know, going into it at least when I learned about this signal in a whole bunch of studies suggesting that ice cream is protective against diabetes, my first thought was like, there's no way this is real. This is an artifact to the data somehow. This is some weird bias that's in there. Um, But it was a tip I got and it turned out that it was in a bunch of different papers. And I was like, wait. So the story for me was always like, how was it that this signal was kind of floating around, but like it had sort of been ignored or brushed aside? I mean, it goes against every kind of conventional thinking, but that was that was the point of it. But so actually talking about it in the media, everybody just wanted to say like, oh, ice cream's good for you, right? So like, can I just go eat a bunch of ice cream now? And I was like, <laughs> well, that's not really like what I was trying to get at. I mean, actually, by the end of the story, I was like some of the expert I talked to did come around or not come come around. You know, they took the position. They were like, I, I, if I, you know, if, if I was a betting man, I would bet that this kind of signal that's turned up in all these epidemiology study is somehow an artifact of the data is not real, but we don't know. And so my position actually migrated from, I thought, I assumed that it was an artifact of the data to a position of, I don't know, because I feel like there, there, there's several experts I talk to who like know the data much better than I do, certainly. And we're saying, like, I don't know, which is just like feels kind of preposterous. In defense of ice cream, you know, it's a relatively whole food. Yes, it's got a lot of sugar, you know, but it's it's, you know, if, if there are a lot of, you know, nutrients and, and um, vitamins, protein, fat in in dairy foods that, you know, the body can make use of. Right. So it's like it's like and maybe it's more filling in some way that, you know, it actually has a lower glycemic index than than bread or even brown rice, which is surprising. So it's digest somewhat more slowly. So, you know, there are people do come up with reasons that it, that it might be um, more true or that it might be that, like, you know, eating ice cream is better than eating, you know, a bag of chips. What about the idea which you do mention in your article that People who've had a scare of heart disease of some sort think to themselves, well, or maybe their doctor tells them, I, I better clean up my act and stop eating ice cream. Um, so that what's happening is not that ice cream protects against heart disease, but fear of heart disease 
diminishes ice cream intake. Exactly. So that's one of the theories that uh, that people that had been floated to kind of ex- explain this. Um, they, you know, they did an analysis in one of the studies, and it sort of it sort of to, where they tried to account for that, and it reduced the effect of ice cream, but it didn't come close to taking it away. Another kind of theory about it might be that um, people are reporting their ice cream intake differentially based on their you know their situation so in some studies it had been suggested that um you know people who were who were leaner were more willing to say oh yeah i eat a lot of ice cream and that people who were heavier were saying um were were underreporting their ice cream intake which would skew which would skew to the data and might be another way to explain that going back to the salt thing and now the the ice cream thing. I mean, what happened, according to your article, what happened seems to be that the nutritionists, they kind of half believed it, or maybe they didn't believe it, but thought there was something there. But nothing happened in terms of guidelines and nothing, you know, the press release has never said, um, our scientists have discovered that ice cream protects. They said other things and they glossed over the whole ice cream thing. So what, why, why was it unpalatable? Well, I think I think like I, I, this is another area where I'm kind of sympathetic to you know responsible nutrition scientists in a way. Like I think I, I do think some of those publications were frankly misleading. Like they like the ice cream signal was in the data. There was there was I mean it was really interesting because there was an ice cream signal and a yogurt signal, both of which appeared to protect against diabetes. And the headlines of the study, everything that came out was like yogurt, yogurt, yogurt. Yogurt might be protective against diabetes. The ice cream signal was at least as strong and consistent as the yogurt signal and it was just it was they attempted to explain it away so it showed the way in which that results are filtered through pre-existing kind of views right these researchers at places like Harvard very prominent places where they know that their you know their studies are going to get written up in the press they may feel some sense of responsibility right they may feel like i can't go out to the world and say that we've got this study that says ice cream might be protective against diabetes, like A, that, you know, goes against everything we believe. B, we think it might be dangerous. C, we think it's wrong, right? And like, it's just irresponsible. It's potentially dangerous. So for me, like, I'm always interested in the role of values in in science. So in this case, the value might be interest in protecting public health, right? And so the idea that like, if you've got this yogurt signal, you've got this ice cream signal, you think that you you believe the yogurt one based on your pre-existing kind of what you know from the body of evidence or what you believe from the body of evidence, you've got this ice cream signal you think is bogus, right? And so you're like, well, maybe the yogurt's okay. We can tell people to eat yogurt because we think, we already think that's good. The ice cream, we can't do that. Like that's just too dangerous. We might kill people, right? We don't want to kill people (laughs) and we need to be responsible. But it also shows like the way that these, that, that ideology, you know, the ideology meaning being, being used here as like, you know, their consensus, you know, their prevailing views of what the nutritional truth is, how that affects how they actually interpret the data that arise from their studies. So that's how values get into science always, inevitably, every single study. There's this, I mean, there are, there are many different attitudes towards the whole idea of, of government nutritional guidelines. I mean, a lot of people just say, hey, it's a personal choice and people should be free to make the choice they, they want to make, um, notwithstanding the fact that the information they're getting can be very confusing, um, very flimsy in many cases. So how do you feel generally about governments issuing guidelines? 
Well, I think the I think the view when when this sort of got going in the sixties and seventies, especially in the seventies. It was that, you know, people have a right to know what we think we know. And there was a very strong, like the low fat thing, saturated fat, that was really driving so much of this because there really was a view coming out of the tobacco wars. Once the scientific community really got to the point where we're like, we really know that, you know, smoking causes lung cancer. We really think it's involved in these cardiovascular disease. We need to tell people to stop smoking. They did tell people to stop smoking. People began to stop smoking. Rates of cardiovascular disease went down. They were like, okay, you know, we think there's something going on with diet too. We think the saturated fat thing is a big deal and we need to, you know, we need to tell people. So there were, there were, I think there was a real feeling in the public health world, like we need to communicate what we know about overnutrition, about eating too much. What are the foods to be avoided, right? And so they began to kind of provide that guidance along with, like there had always been guidance about like get your four food groups and like how to have a balanced diet. But this was like... The new regime of that was like talking about eating too much. So there was a feeling like that wasn't the ethical thing to, how could you not, you know, provide people with information that they could use in, in their lives? The question always was like, well, how sure are you? Like what kind of evidence do you actually need to provide guidance? And that's like an ethical question. It's not really a scientific one. Um, um, they obviously reached that point in the 70s and 80s, and then things changed over time. I think, I do think one thing they they kind of underestimated at that time was like, the degree to which the possibility of change in the science would undermine the, you know, the public trust in the nutrition sphere and kind of an ongoing basis, which became, which has become a real big problem for the nutrition world that they really are still trying to shake because people always say, oh, well, things are always changing. And partly that's because like, as we've discussed, the media is always publishing, willing to publish all different kinds of, of, of viewpoints. So that's one thing. I do think like it makes sense to provide guidance, but I do think there's been like a, a pulling back in a sense of like realizing that like, A, it's really hard science to do really well. So maybe we need broader kind of, you know, less specific guidance that we can, that we feel we can kind of stand by. Um, but it's also important to like keep in mind that like, Silence is not really an option, right? Because like otherwise, like you're just abdicating, you know, you're giving the ground to the food industry to like produce whatever, whatever sells them. If you give up on providing information or trying to like tell people what is healthy, then like the food industry is going to define that what that is or it's going to define what is available, right? Choosing not to speak is would also be like a political decision, which is um, I, I think would be a big mistake. David Johns. I'm not so sure. If changing the advice, for very good reasons, leads some people to ignore all such advice, is that really any better than not giving any advice? Or is it better to give the advice so that at least people have the opportunity to follow it? Yeah, probably it is. I'll put some links to some of David John's articles in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And, of course, I'd love to hear any thoughts you may have on the matter. Drop a line to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. My thanks again to everyone who subscribes, and especially the people who help the show with a donation. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. Well, that's it for now. So, from me, Jeremy Chirpus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening.